it was a great conference. I'm not going to lie. Like, I've been to, uh, you know, a fair amount. And Have you? Enough to know that really big conferences make you feel like you're just a nobody. You know, you're just like one of the faceless masses attending a conference. Right. Uh, that's, I mean, I felt the same way about going to any large institution, whether it was college or a job or whatever. Like, I just don't like the impersonal feel of really large things. And having gone to Ignite many years in a row, at, towards the end, I just was like, I don't care about any of, it's not that I don't care about, that sounds harsh. But anyway, I don't care about any of these people. And I could watch all the technology announcements from home. What am I actually getting out of coming here? Right. And that's the downside of any conference. As it starts to get larger, it necessarily has to get more vague so that more people are in on what they're talking about, thus rendering especially the technical parts of it kind of either off to the side or just off of the itinerary completely. And it turns into – uh, rah rah and sales and marketing and less technical announcements and whatnot. That's certainly true of keynotes. So, whatever the keynote's going to be, the larger the conference, the more vague the keynote tends to be. You know, more aspirational, general feelings. Yeah. Let's have some stilted CEOs come in and try to read off of a teleprompter that they've never done before. Right. People who should absolutely never be on camera for any reason. Right. They shouldn't even be in family photos. Just no, no race no. them right out. We'll all be better for it. Yeah. So, yeah, those large conferences just felt deeply impersonal. And even going to the technical sessions, like, I don't know, there's so many of them. So it's hard to pick. And, you know, they're all going to be recorded and posted later. So, you right. know, what I uh, what I ended up doing in most of the conferences I went to. After that was just roaming the expo floor and talking to like random vendors that seemed to have something, you know, vaguely interesting. So you were just trolling for free Raspberry Pis. As many as I could get. <laughs> uh yeah. And and lots of socks because I really I like socks and I don't like paying for them. So socks for the Raspberry Pis or Yes, they get cold at night. You got to keep them warm in their own little raspberry socks, especially in the winter. Naturally, I mean, because I keep them outside, as one does. One, one would assume. Yeah, that they're not housebroken. <laughs> Serious, <laughs> just dribbling electrons everywhere. Ugh, when you say it that way, it sounds gross. Ugh, you should check out their Norgates. Uh, I don't know where I was going with that. I'm going to stop now because I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> That's a relief for everybody. <laughs> Especially the raspberry pies. <laughs> but yeah, I guess next week we can do we can do uh, a major topic of the HashiConf global conference. What I learned, what I observed, and... I would imagine what you talked about. Yes, and maybe even a little bit about what I presented on and that that could be a good main topic all right yeah you're welcome awesome great <laughs> suggestion from me because that's what i was going to do anyway jerk wait wait a minute <laughs> you've fallen into my trap <laughs> oh hello alleged human and welcome <laughs> to the chaos lever podcast my name is ned i'm definitely not a robot you know empathy comes naturally to me I feel a deep kinship with my fellow human beings. There is no protocol buried in my completely organic brain that prevents me from going on a murderous rampage. I definitely do not feel the need to exterminate, 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 exterminate. <coughs> with me is Chris, who's also here. Hi, Chris. The enthusiasm in your voice is palpable today. <laughs> Am I enthusiastic? So ordinarily, you open the show with something like, hello, alleged human. And this time you opened it with, hello, alleged human. I have probably been listening to too much NPR, or maybe <sighs> it's just the conference crud that I brought back with me. 
It's like the kind of voice that you generally use if you have to talk to your sister's boyfriend and you really don't feel like it. Yeah, that is frighteningly accurate. I feel like that's based off of some real world experience. Here's your notebook that you forgot, Dennis. <laughs> don't worry, I didn't read through it. You're disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so you wrote a thing, and man, I did not read it because I saw quantum mechanics and I immediately ran away. <laughs> Good for you. But you didn't. You engaged. And now you're going to teach me things about stuff. Well, this is the fun part. So I wrote this a few days ago and have subsequently forgotten everything. <laughs> because this is what happens when Christopher tries to do mathematics. <laughs> I think that's true of almost anyone who tries to engage with quantum whatever. But yeah, proceed. Let's see how this goes. So, as people might have seen, the 2022 Nobel Prize in Physics was awarded to Elaine Aspect, John Clauser, and Anton Zeilinger. Apologies for all of those pronunciations. As is tradition, the prize was awarded for work that they've all been doing as far back as the 1970s. The Nobel Prize website includes a lot of information about the prize. And it's really, it's worth a look. Like, it's comprehensive. Mm. Um, and importantly, they talk about the work not just as a one-off, but all of the work that's been done around quantum mechanics over the past 100 years. It doesn't seem like we knew about quantum mechanics 100 years ago. You knew, we're talking 1920s here. Yep. Flapper Girls, Prohibition. Albert and, Einstein published a paper in 1925 that addressed quantum realms, and we will get to it. Oh, wow. I mean, that is that is surprising because I, just, yeah. I envisioned that nothing modern was happening 100 years ago. <laughs> nothing modern happened before I was born, that's, surely. That's right. <laughs> Indeed. Um, no, it's kind of funny because the Nobel Prize takes forever to award prizes. Mm, yes. I was reading around about this, these winners and past winners, and there was a funny quote that may be apocryphal about the Nobel. One year, a winner was heard to observe that it was funny to receive an award in his 80s for work that he did in his 20s. You would think that this is just a Nobel thing. <laughs> Aren't the Swedish so silly with their accents and their chef's hats? Word, but, bird, 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 bird. Remember that America gave Pacino an Oscar for Scent of a Woman instead of The Godfather. And, well, you get the idea. Well, that's certainly a tradition for the Oscars. Hooah! Word, bird, hooah! So this specific award recognizes a huge experimental success that helps us understand quantum mechanics and the behavior of particles in an entangled state. The TLDR is, one, quantum mechanics is truly probabilistic and not deterministic based on hidden variables, which we'll get to. And two, the standard classical theory is not waiting in the wings for us. Quantum is different than Newtonian physics. Period. Okay. And they proved these two points, not just with math and argumentation, but actual physical experiments. And also math. Lots of math. So much math that I am going to just pick up and very gently set to the side. <laughs> we're going to pet the math. We're going to make the math feel welcome and whole, but we're going to ignore it for the purposes of this conversation because holy shit. <laughs> That's fair. I've never even tried to wrap my brain around any of the equations. They don't even look like complicated equations, but they're complicated equations. No, it's like four terms. And then you're like, what is that term? And they're like, all right, let me flip over the chalkboard. And 12 right. hours later, They've explained one term. Thanks. Yeah. So we're not going to do that. <laughs> okay. But since you didn't know that this conversation has been going on for so long, I am assuming a lot of other people didn't know this conversation has been going on for so long. I knew that Einstein had a rather dim view of like things like spooky action at a distance and quantum entanglement, uh, which means yeah. he must have been engaging with the theory on some level. 
Correct. And it's not just him. Pretty much all of the physicists that you have heard of waded into this topic at some point. And <laughs> I was imagining most of them slowly backing out as well. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just that, like funnily enough, that actually happened with one or two of them, just disappearing back um, into the bush, like Homer. <laughs> so the concept of quantum was at that time new, hypothetical, and utterly untestable. The actual idea of quantum space came from a guy you might have heard of called Heisenberg. Mm, the uncertainty principle. That would be the guy. Uh huh. He started building out math that removed Newtonian physics from what came to be called quantum mechanics. And Einstein wasn't having any of that shit. Listen, he was I, against it. Mm -hmm. He revolutionized Newtonian physics and introduced relativi uh, relativism. And damn if anybody wasn't going to mess with that. Right. What he wanted and what he spent most of the second half of his life searching for was a theory of everything. This theory would be all-encompassing and naturally would encompass quantum. Mm -hmm. He had a friendly, let's call it friendly rivalry with another <laughs> physicist, one that you also might have heard of called Niels Bohr. Mm -hmm. Bohr was on board with the Heisenberg approach, leading to a number of conversations and letters sent back and forth between the two that ended with one of Einstein's famous and as we shall see, incorrect quotes. Einstein said, quote, at any rate, I am convinced that God does not throw dice. And what he meant by this was that there was always something that explained everything. One domino falls, another falls because of it. The universe was not governed by random chance at any level. Right. It was deterministic in nature. Exactly. If you knew all of the variables for a system, you could predict with complete accuracy the end result of that system at any point in time. Yep. And, and that is just not the case in quantum. I also want to point out that Einstein is one of the most misquoted or incorrectly quoted or misattributed attributed quotes only behind, um, what's his Abraham name? Abraham Lincoln. Mark Twain. Yes. Mark Twain it has so many things attributed to him that he never said, but Einstein's right. like a close second. <laughs> that is very true. And it's also true that Einstein kind of had a sense of humor. Indeed. So sometimes he would say things in a sarcastic tone that were taken seriously. <laughs> there is no blue. He didn't say that, but now he did. <laughs> Putting that in his shirt with his face. <laughs> So the wild thing is all these physicists that we were talking about, they would just like hang out. They would have these little conferences. They would write letters back and forth and they would do official, proper, legitimate and rigorous academic work, publishing papers and whatnot. But they would just talk to each other. It was wild. <laughs> and it could actually they could get pretty sassy with one another in, you know, like I said, friendly rivalry and heavy air quotes. Mm hmm. But here's another physicist that was involved in this conversation, a name you might have heard of, a guy called Schrodinger. Indeed, the cat guy. So in one of these conferences, <laughs> there was a heated argument where Schrodinger called the whole idea of quantum jumps a sheer fantasy, where Niels Bohr replied, but that does not prove that there are no quantum jumps. Just by poking your fingers into your ear and saying, la, 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 I can't hear quantum doesn't make it not exist. <laughs> All the current state of science proved, according to Bohr, was we can't imagine them. So basically what he was saying is this stuff works. We just can't prove it yet. Hmm. Fast forward to 1964, and we have a physicist called John Stuart Bell poking up the idea. And he actually came up with what Bohr and Heisenberg were looking for, a way to prove that quantum mechanics was separate from classical physics. It is creatively titled Bell's Theorem. And it revolves around the idea that, quote, quantum mechanics is incompatible with local hidden variable theories, unquote. And stop looking at the math. Don't encourage it. <laughs> We're avoiding the math. 
Oh, I just want to feed it a cookie. Have a co- oh. <laughs> God. Okay. But I bet I know exactly what your next question is. What is a local hidden variable theory? Because I definitely have not heard of that before. Right. So this is where we sort of enter into like terms of art. So I'm going to try to explain it and how it works in the quantum realm, compare and contrast with the standard physics model. Okay. And there's actually a pretty popular example. Once again, this is listed on the Nobel website. There's a video that explains it in more detail than I'm going to go into. But you can ask some navel-gazing questions like, does color exist if no one is watching? There is no blue. I was right. I mean, Einstein Einstein was right. Einstein (laughs) said that. So, thought experiment. Okay. Imagine there are two rooms, and there is a box that splits the two rooms. Mm-hmm. There is one person in each room, and the machine does only one thing. It gives a ball of an opposite color to each person. So, if room number one gets a black ball, room number two gets a blue ball. You know this as you enter into room number one. So, the question is, what color are the balls in the box? So if you go with the standard approach, the answer is obvious. There's one black ball and there's one white ball. So this is where the interesting thing happens and where the hidden variable comes from. You knowing that there is one black ball and one white ball is inferred based on a known outcome. You know what's gonna come out of the box into your room is either a white ball or a black ball. Therefore, you know that the box contains a white ball and a black ball, right? Yes, I feel like there's. this is a trick question. <laughs> it's So in, in classical physics, this is a completely logical thing. This is a deduction that makes sense and is backed up by our physical experience. Mm-hmm. But the idea that you know that the box contains a black ball and a white ball is a hidden variable. You can't see in the box. You can only see what comes out of the box. I see. So the the box, I don't know what's inside of it, but I can infer what's inside of it by what comes out of it. Exactly. So the hidden variable is one white ball, one black ball in the box. In the physical, standard, classical model, that makes sense. If you go with the quantum approach, and this is what they were arguing about, Something unusual happens. Mm-hmm. The balls in the box are gray. Okay. They randomly become black and white, always in a pair. Then when either the person in room one or the person in room two looks at the output, the balls become black and white. Okay. So in this model, you know the outcome is going to be either a white ball or a black ball. You don't know what's in the box, and you can't know what's in the box because the box doesn't know what's in the box. There is no hidden variable this time. All you get is the output. So I can say with equal certainty, I know there's a 50-50 chance that I'm going to get a white ball and a 50-50 that I'm going to get a black ball, but that tells me nothing about the actual ball when it's still inside the box. Correct. This is what they proved experimentally. And the experiment is actually pretty cool. I'm not going to go into that either. It involves lasers. <laughs> yes, as it should. So they proved this. But what they proved was the balls are obviously not real. What they did was prove it with an example of entangled particles. And while the output is exactly the same, one gets white, one gets black, or whatever information you want to use in this example, neither you nor the box has any idea what's going on until the particle is observed. So in this case, Einstein was wrong. God does play dice and we can prove it or have proof. Not we, like you and I, like the human race. Right. I I didn't, I didn't prove it. No, no. So this is why, this is why this is great is that this kind of experiment, as I said, has been going on since the seventies. The very model has been proven elsewhere. So that's one of the keystones of science is reproducible results, right? Mm-hmm. 
2006, two scientists called John Conway and Simon Cochin wrote a paper called The Free Will Theorem with the abstract leading, reading in part. On the basis of three physical axioms, we will prove if the choice of a particular type of spin one experiment is not a function of the information accessible to the experimenters, then its outcome is equally not a function of the information accessible to the particles. Pretty easy, right? Uh, yeah, I definitely understood that, but maybe, maybe you could help me. <laughs> it's the same concept in a different way, proven experimentally that randomness leads to the outcomes. Now, in this case, I really do think that the paper's name was regrettable. We don't need to call this free will. What are you doing? <laughs> Why are scientists fishing for clicks? Yeah, you're really asking for a larger conversation that has nothing to... Well, I mean, it, you could extrapolate it out, but that is unnecessary for this paper. Right. But the big point is we're figuring out ways to test this that can be reproduced that is a huge differentiator between quantum mechanics and, say, string theory. Multiple right. minor, tiny universes, metaverses, whatever you want to call it, cannot be tested. And now I'm sure there's a bunch of string theory scientists going, yes, yet, or but actually, or garçon coffee, or whatever it is that string theory people talk about. But right. like I said up top, the end result that they got awarded for is the definitive evidence that standard classical theory and quantum mechanics are two different things. Right. Got it? I I, I got it. Okay. <laughs> so everything you do in quantum mechanics is about entanglement. So like in the example that we talked about before, if you know that you have a white ball, then you know the other party has a black ball. You don't need to check. And importantly, nobody observing the box would have any idea who got what. And additionally, you can group entanglements together. There is actually a mechanism called an entangler, which is very funny. And I think, did I put a diagram in here for you to observe? No, I didn't. Of course not. Well, it's in one of the show notes. <laughs> okay. So you've got entanglements with two, two particles then you can put into an entangler and create a larger distance between the original entangled pair. Right. And then there's something called quantum teleportation, which works because particles are entangled. You make a change to one, something happens to the other. You observe the other and you get some information about that observation and you can send data from one place to another without having to go through some type of physical network. Right. And we'll talk about this more in depth in a second. But this is borderline magic. It certainly feels like borderline magic. And it's also important to note and, and really remember, this works on the tiniest of tiny particles. The quantum realm is so much smaller than Ant-Man. So it's really hard to do these types of things. It's really hard to explain them because your mind immediately goes to a classical design. Right. Like what does regular physics say about this? And the answer definitively is it doesn't matter. It has to be considered on its own terms. Right. When we think about how we all grew up, we grew up in experiencing classical systems. Yes. You know, you learn to walk. You learn to avoid falling objects. You learn that hot things stay hot for a little while. Like all the things that you learn about the physical world are tied very closely to classical physics, uh, classical model physics, which is why like relativistic physics seems real funky and also why quantum physics seems real funky because it doesn't line up with any of our natural experience. So you just got to like put all that to the side. And just go, okay, this is a totally different thing happening here. And it's at such a tiny, tiny scale that the brain just has trouble fathoming it. Yes. Yeah, that's exactly the case. And, I mean, tragically, that's the trap that Einstein fell into. Was just, it must work this way because everything else does. And it should be noted that basically him and Schrodinger were like two guys against the world at the end of their lives. Everybody else in physics was like, guys, you've got to let it go. <laughs> Remember, 
the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment was meant to be an absurdity that right. delegitimized the idea of quantum um, and superposition in specific. Um, but unfortunately for him, <laughs> he was it actually turned right? out to be a pretty apt metaphor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and hence, I have a t-shirt or had a t-shirt that was Schrodinger's or cat both. wanted dead and alive. <laughs> it's a cute shirt. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Thanks. I'm funny. Quite. No, your t-shirt's funny. It's different. It is and it isn't? <laughs> there we go. Okay, good. We're all back on board. And we're not. So, <laughs> uh, so let's just talk briefly about some of the later, latest things that are going on. I didn't do a super deep dive into the 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 goings on of quantum because, frankly, it confuses me a little bit. So I just picked out some sentences that sounded like English, and we're going to hope for the best. All right. So underpinning all of this is what can quantum do for us? And the answer to that is always going to start with quantum computers. So this one people have heard of. They've been around for years at various different sizes and levels of experimentation. Quantum computer... Quantum? Quantum computers are going to take over the world, tackling problems that are either too slow or actually impossible with a standard non-quantum computer. We're doing pretty good on that front. I mean, everybody and their mother seems to have a quantum computer program going. I mean, all the companies you can think of, right? Microsoft has one. IBM has one. Google has one. Google mm -hmm. has one that you can rent. Indeed. They're out there, um, and we're getting to some interest. We're getting to start to solve some interesting problems that have slowed down the growth of quantum computers. One of the things that is being fixed, for lack of a better word, is powered quantum computers are things called qubits, which is basically a bit, a quantum bit. Right. Get it? I get things sometimes. The problem with them is that they need to be super close together. So like a hundred nanometers close in order to communicate with each other. Mm -hmm. Now, up till now, this hasn't been a problem because current quantum computers only run about 50 qubits, right? There's not a lot, but the practical estimations for real world work mm -hmm. is something like 1000 to 2000 qubits at a minimum. That's a lot. Yeah. Can't fit that into 100 nanometers, though. You're going to need more space. Mm -hmm. Luckily, researchers have been working on something called a quantum bus that extends the distance. Drum roll, please. No. No. <sighs> 560 nanometers. I mean, that's so, five times, more than five times as far. Exactly. It's not ideal in the sense of where they want to be long term, but hey, it's a start. Oh, and researchers estimate that the amount of time it'll take us to get to a functioning 2,000 qubit computer, about 10 to 15 years. Isn't that always the case? It's always 10 to 15 <laughs> just, years just away. Just like cold fusion. <laughs> yeah. So what do you use a quantum computer for? One of the things you use it for is quantum simulation. Hmm. So this one is interesting. We're already familiar with computers doing regular simulations. Things like simulating traffic patterns to the outcome of sports events with pretty decent accuracy, considering the amount of variables we're talking about. I mean, you use a simulation basically every day to find out what the weather's going to be like. Yeah, that's true. Um, and some of these will work fine. One thing we can't do very well at all with regular computers is simulate a quantum computer. <laughs> there are actually some that exist, mm -hmm. but they are super slow because the amount of computation is insane. Uh, and there's only so much estimating you can do. So in a very inception-y move, quantum computers are being used to simulate quantum computers. <laughs> and the primary reason for, for this... The primary reason for this is to continue to help developing the technology that makes them possible, right? Simulate qubits 
to do experiments with how the qubits communicate with each other, develop new quantum VMs to experiment with how they would a different system would speak to each other. Hmm. It makes it easier to develop new systems from both the full system itself, meaning these massive calculations and communications, down to the individual components that make quantum computers uh, quantumize. Well, it kind of makes me think of the fact that we use computers now to design ever smaller and more efficient chips that will run in our computers that will allow us to design ever more efficient and smaller chips, which go in our computers to help us. Oh, God, I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> You've been repeating that for 45 minutes. Are you, uh, you doing all right? I'm, I'm kind of hungry and a little dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> so... It's not also, also, it's not only about designing quantum computers. Quantum simulation can be used in the quantum realm to solve quantum problems. Now, again, we talked about at the top, you can do this with a standard computer, but it's real hard and it's real slow. Mm -hmm. Using a quantum simulator to design a quantum experiment, however, not as bad. Okay. So now, this has been done in important cases already. Notably, to help solve bizarre questions like, how does temperature work in a quantum system? Is it such a thing? What is temperature? <laughs> well, I linked that one in the show notes, too. I double dare you to read the abstract and not get dizzy. I'm already dizzy, as we've established. <laughs> and then finally, where things get kind of interesting, and all of the material discussion that we've had before kind of comes together... The power of utilizing entanglement and superposition for communication via quantum teleportation. Mm -hmm. So regular electronic communication has a start and a finish. In between there are, well, there's the internet, which roughly encompasses 12 billion hops to get from one place to another. <laughs> I haven't really minimum. done the math recently. <laughs> Plenty of opportunity, though, for your traffic to be observed. Now, here's where things get interesting when you add quantum teleportation. Right. So we talked about entanglement and the various ways that entanglement can be extended using an entangler, which is still just an amazing name for a thing. <laughs> what you can do is with these extenders, you have the sender and the receiver have a quantum pair, an entangled pair of protons or whatever. Mm -hmm. You do something to the sender's particle, something happens to the receiver's particle. Why? Because they're entangled. What's crazy about this is that nothing in between has to happen. So if you have a proton and I have a proton and I change it and you observe it, that's it. The two, the two protons being entangled get that information without the 12 billion hops in between. Right. It's it's immediate. So you don't have latency there. And you also don't have something that can be observed outside of those two particles. Exactly right. You do that enough, and you still will have to use a standard network because you have to share data about measurements. But that's metadata. The real data, the part that we care about, was transferred via the entanglement. And this is not hypothetical. This is a real thing that's happening. Does the researchers? Well, quick question: Does the observation on the receiving end destroy the entanglement of the two particles? Is this like a one and done? It doesn't destroy the entanglement, um, but they don't they don't remain entangled forever. Okay. So that's that's a good point, and that's why you need so many entanglers. <laughs> Fair enough. Researchers from NASA to Colleges in Geneva have been working on this product and utilizing particle state detectors designed by the JPL slash NIST have recorded teleported data from a sender to a receiver located 15 miles apart. Okay. So not cross country, but no. still good God. This is a very evolving field, especially in terms of building the quantum repeaters or maybe entanglers that will make super long distances possible. But eventually the hope is it ends up being the base for a full scale quantum internet 
one that could share sensitive data directly from point A to point B without anything at all in between. So you would still need to transport one, one half of the pair to the location that you want to be the receiver, correct? That's correct. Okay. And then once, once you have the pair with sender and receiver, then you would start sharing information between the two without any steps in between. But you're right. You still have to get the particle there. And the best part about this is if anybody observes the particle in transit, that's repeated. That's information that you can now gather. So you can tell that the pair has been observed and then you just throw it away and start over again. Right, right. So it, it prevents a sort of man in the middle or an interception attack from happening during transport or after transport. There is absolutely no way to observe or modify a quantum particle without the entangled other particle changing state. Right. Impossible. And one of the things that I've heard uh, behind how this would initially work is you would use this quantum entanglement to set up to exchange keys for encryption or something like that. That would be 100% secure. No one can intercept those keys as they're being transmitted from one end to the other, which gets rid of the problem of establishing initial trust in any communication system. And then you could continue yep. to use those keys for a certain amount of time to encrypt data that's being sent over a regular network. Exactly. Yeah, it's important to note that a quantum internet would not replace the regular internet. Standard classical computers are not going anywhere ever. Right. They're two very different use cases, different they excel at different things, but you're right. And the model that you're talking about, this is exactly what we do with public key encryption. I share the public key, private key, all that stuff. All that does is create the ability to share a private key. Mm -hmm. Because when you have a private key, it is substantially faster. Right. So now instead of using PKI, you would use the quantum internet to share and to create those private keys to right. allow communication. And in that case, you could do symmetric encryption instead of asymmetric encryption, which, as you mentioned, is a lot, lot, lot faster from a computational standpoint. Yes. And I should have said symmetric, asymmetric instead of public and private. But well, I mean, the, the I point know. is the point is taken. And that's why most uh, cryptography systems, when it gets to actually encrypting data, it uses symmetric keys to encrypt the data. And then it has key encrypting keys that are asymmetric to encrypt the data encryption keys or the DEX. Exactly. Yeah. And that's it. Then you just use the symmetric key. And that's how HTTPS works, for example. Mm -hmm. So in a different show, maybe we can do a deep dive into a subsection of this, which is called quantum key encryption. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But I think we've confused people enough for one day. And I think I would also like to explore a little bit around the potential for quantum computing to break the existing encryption uh, technology that we use, the algorithms that we use today, and what's being done to future-proof the newer versions of the algorithms. Right. It's not a potential. It's a likelihood. Right. Not an if, no. but a when. Yep. Lightning round? Lightning round. Will Big Blue do right by Seth? <clears throat> Sorry. You all right? Okay. All right. They suck. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> kind of surprised you didn't pick this one up. Um, last week, it was announced that Seth and its associated teams at Red Hat will be moved into the IBM storage group. Now, for a quick bit of history, Red Hat was acquired by IBM way back in 2019 for $34 billion. And we were so young then. I know. And since that time, the two companies have mostly remained separate. IBM has taken a hands-off approach on the golden goose that is Red Hat, and Red Hat, for their part, has been politely silent on their opinions of IBM. <laughs> Of course, in the background, there has been a shuffling of the boardroom, which includes the promotion of Arvind Krishna to CEO of IBM. He was the one at IBM who architected the acquisition of Red Hat, and he has championed them internally at IBM. 
For those who are not aware of Ceph, it is an open source storage product that was pioneered by Red Hat to serve as an option for those looking to use software-defined storage. It is deeply baked into their OpenShift platform under the moniker OpenShift Data Platform. They were not subtle about this. According to the announcement, IBM is planning to create a consistent hybrid cloud experience using Ceph with other products like IBM Spectrum Scale. Now, I was as surprised as anyone to learn that IBM has an existing storage group that the Red Hat team can join. Even though the press release mentions IBM's industry-leading storage systems portfolio. I guess that's leading from behind? My concern is that Red Hat and IBM's cultures are not exactly compatible. Kind of like Apple Talk and Token Ring. God, you're old. I know. And the result will be a not-so-gradual exit of Red Hatters and a cessation of Ceph innovation. Let's hope that Ceph will not be the soft layer of storage mergers. Elon Musk just can't stop losing. <laughs> what? A week it's been for the old musker. There has been a lot of news flying around lately for the man voted most likely to end up looking like a dirty melted Lego figurine. So this will have to be a lightning round, lightning round, like set, whatever. Let's, Very appropriate. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> First up, Musk loses, or, well, capitulated. Finally recognizing the untenable spot he put himself in when he stupidly offered to buy Twitter at a meme-tastic price of $54.20 a share. Ass. And then even stupidlier signed an agreement waiving basically all his rights to inspect Twitter beforehand. Musk, this week, said he would buy the social media cesspit for, you guessed it, $54.20 a share. As is his nature, he had been desperately trying to get out of the deal by gaslighting, obstructing, and projecting. But he's learned the hard way that that shit was not going to fly in the lawsuit filed against him in Delaware's Chancery Court. This isn't Texas, Elon. They actually enforce laws in the Chancery Court. <laughs> oh, and what a future Twitter has in front of it. From the Wall Street Journal, quote, Elon Musk's revived bid is for a Twitter weakened by macroeconomic trends and Musk's own actions. Analysts expect a 4.5% revenue growth in 2022 versus 37% in 2021, unquote. Ouch. Good work there. Next up, Elon came out in favor of Russia's plan to stop the war in Ukraine. That's right, folks. After getting... Generally positive headlines for Starlink deployments to help communications inside Ukraine, the Muskinator pulled a complete about face and suggested, of course on Twitter, a quote, plan for peace. This plan included things like Ukraine stays out of NATO. Ukraine acknowledges that Russia owns Crimea. The sham elections that Russia executed get redone. Almost sounds like things that Putin would say, right? Well, that's because they are. Mm. The preposterous suggestions come right out of the Kremlin's propaganda playbook, and world leaders were quick to condemn him, with one Ukrainian official asking if Musk had been hacked. <laughs> he wasn't hacked, my friend. He's just an asshole. Another Ukrainian official was more succinct with his reply, saying, and I promise this is an exact quote, fuck off is my very diplomatic reply to you, unquote. <laughs> that was the diplomatic reply? <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Tesla continues to lose. The stock dropped another 10% after production numbers failed to hit projections this past quarter. At the time of writing, the stock is trading around $250. For reference, the stock was trading at 305 just two weeks ago and was hitting highs around the 400s this time last year. Great work there. Great work, everybody. But really, this is kind of the crux. Tesla's supposed to be Elon's baby. Elon has been spending all of his time doing anything except managing Tesla. And it shows. The stock is tanking, purchases are slowing, and faith in Tesla, one, because that faith is tied directly to Elon's fading star, and two, because major car manufacturers are entering the market and immediately starting to outpace Tesla. 
So that faith is kind of eroding. Mm -hmm. After his forced sale in August, it is estimated that Musk only has a 20% share in Tesla. So that's the largest individual share, but it's far from a majority. One has to wonder what it will take for the remaining 80% to vote his ass to the curb. Oh, I'm sure he'll do something. <laughs> another day, another blockchain hack. Listen, I know that you're not surprised by these anymore. Some rando crypto coin or exchange gets hacked, and it's probably due to a phishing attack with Discord or plopping weird smart contracts in someone's wallet or over-leveraging assets with circular loans. But this one is important because it's not some tiny, untrusted exchange. It's Binance, a.k.a. the world's biggest crypto exchange. So that's bad. Bad? Well, yeah, yeah, bad for investors who trusted that such a big institution had appropriate safeguards. Binance initially reported that a hacker had taken $100 million of tokens and paused the affected blockchain for eight hours. Later reports showed that the token in question was Binance's own BNB token for the BSC token hub, which allows users to transfer their token from one chain to another by leveraging an intermediary. Although details are scarce, Binance is not being uh, transparent, shall we say? According to them, the attacker was able to exploit a flaw in the BNB token production to create extra tokens associated with the attacker's wallets. The end result was 2 million tokens being stolen at a value of approximately $570 million. Due to the immutable nature of distributed ledgers, recovering the funds is no easy task, and as of right now, a paltry 7 million has been recovered. And that's probably going to be it. Since these tokens were created rather than stolen, no one's funds were directly pilfered. But of course, adding more coins to the pool, along with the reputational hit of being hacked, devalues the BNB token, indirectly harming Binance customers. Perhaps we shouldn't be moving billions of dollars through mostly untested financial systems that are already rife with grift and crime. Or am I just being silly? Oh, Ned. <laughs> Microsoft Ignite is happening, and I'm sure you know what that means. Woo! Or, I mean, I, I hope you, you do. I have no idea. I'm sure it will be filled with much delicious Microsofty goodness. Delicious. Ned will probably get a Raspberry Pi out of it somehow. At least two. The yearly tech conference kicks off quite soon, and by soon, I mean tomorrow. The event runs from October 12th to the 14th, so, like, if you didn't know about it, sorry for the short notice. My bad. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> you can attend in person in Seattle for the low, low price of $1,895, or completely remotely for the low, low price of $0. They're out of Seattle tickets. Oh, are they? Yes, they are. So well, they weren't when I wrote this. Remote it is. <laughs> In any event, I'll give you three guesses on which option I picked. Fair enough. Now, concurrently with the Microsoft Ignite Conference will be the Microsoft Ignite Cloud Skills Challenge. This is the free and recurring Microsoft Learn event where you can complete a series of lectures and exercises and in return get a free voucher for a Microsoft certification exam. This time around, there are tracks around cloud, AI automation, modern work, which looks like a lot of Teams telephony stuff, mm. DevOps, and the Custo query language, or KQL. As usual, you may complete as many challenges as you'd like, but you're only eligible for one voucher. So choose wisely. I'll give you three guesses for which option I picked. KQL, baby. Yeah. <sighs> it was DevOps, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it was. Microsoft announces Azure Firewall Basic in preview. Taking a cue from advertising company Google, that's their official name now, right? Yes, sir. Okay. Microsoft simply loves releasing products in preview so they can outsource QA to the paying public. The latest of these will be a welcome one to many, though a significantly cheaper version of Azure Firewall. 
Azure Firewall is, um, it's a firewall. It Ooh, I figured that out. Yeah. It offers many more security features than the standard network security group rules can. It is a service that is fully managed and can provide filtering from layer three through layer seven. It is also, unfortunately, expensive. The standard version of Azure Firewall costs an astonishing $1.25 per hour retail in most regions, including East US, along with 1.6 cents per gigabit, eh, along with 1.6 gigabytes data processed. I still didn't do that right. Along with 1.6 cents per gigabyte data processed. Since a firewall basically has to be on all the time, this comes in at something like $900 a month. Ouch. The basic version of Azure Firewall is coming at a much more reasonable price, 39.5 cents per hour, which equates to about $290 per month. This is going to be much more palatable for SMBs who might be scared off by the standard pricing and have no need for the web content filtering, DNS proxy, or ATP features that standard would provide. Be aware though, the basic version jacks up the data processing from 1.6 cents per gigabyte to an eye-watering 6.5 cents. Naughty Microsoft, very, very naughty. I did always think that the Azure Firewall was ludicrously priced. Just yeah, there's no excuse for why it is so high. Uh, the only thing I can think of is that it's running on Windows VMs, and then the Azure team has to pay like the Windows licensing team money. <laughs> and they pass that savings on to you. Yay! So I guess that's good. I suspect that 90% of people are only ever going to use basic from now on because honestly a lot of those features people just aren't going to want directly through the firewall anyway. Right, you would you would put the app gateway in front of something that you needed that layer 7 processing for. Right. Right, and then pay the extortionate fees for the application gateway. <laughs> <laughs> One way or another. We're going to get you. Anyway, hey, uh thanks for listening or something. Guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now go ahead and declare yourself a sovereign citizen and assume the title of Grand Pooba of Ix, Supreme Leader of Okerfell, and Lord of all Quasits. You've earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and Hainer80, respectively. Or you could follow the show at chaos underscore lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at chaoslever.com if you like reading things, which you probably shouldn't. Podcasts continue to be the better super book in every conceivable way. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. It still cracks me up that we used Superbook as the title in an episode where we didn't say Superbook once. <laughs> you know, it was a conversation that happened after the episode. <laughs> oh, yay. We love our audience, and they love us. They do.